In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers, sisters, and your respected viewers, wherever you may be, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, welcome to this latest installment in our series on the important topic of the afterlife. As a, as a general reminder of the sequencing of the arguments that we've presented until now, um, I think it's uh, important to see how the lecture or how the points that we bring in every lecture fit into the bigger picture that we've presented. So today's topic is supposed to be presenting one more argument from reason, a rational argument to establish the necessity of the afterlife. So this is different than saying, or this is more than just saying that we want to establish, let's say, for instance, that the afterlife is possible. We're saying that not only is it possible, it's logical that there is an afterlife. We're saying that it is necessary that there is an afterlife. So in order to do this, and before we jump into this, so today, inshallah, the argument is going to be from justice, from divine justice, as the last one from was divine uh, divine wisdom. Let's recap quickly what we've said until now. The idea of the afterlife, the topic, the question surrounding the afterlife. So the moment of death and every, everything that follows. We said that this is important for a number of reasons, and we can summarize them in two big ones. The first one has to do with the notion of the worldview. So basically, where do you fit in or how do you find yourself as you experience the world, what is your place in existence? This is really the big questions that have to do with your place, your relationship with the world, how you experience the world, the lens through which you see yourself and the world. This is your worldview. Where do I come from? What am I doing here? And where am I going? And we said for the question of the afterlife specifically, the value that you get is that theoretically, you need to understand what happens after you die to have a complete worldview, but this has a direct implication. This has a direct implication on the manner in which you live. This is going to have a direct implication on how you conduct yourself. You're not going to live in the same manner if you think that there is something that happens after you die Versus someone who does not think that anything happens. Basically, there is nothingness that awaits you. So this is going to give meaning and direction. It's going to orient everything you do. People who think that there is something awaiting them after they die cannot live in the same way as someone who thinks that it's absolute nothingness. So I'm limited to this material entity that is my body. And... From that point on, I live my life, and 
as I reach death, I know that there's just nothing. And so I get to do whatever I want to do here. It's lacking meaning. It's like, perhaps it's lacking the ethical foundation that you would find because, you know, there's something awaiting every one of your actions. We discussed that and we'll come back to that later, inshallah. You're not going to live in the same manner depending on what you think happens. Further than that, it's not just a matter of saying there is something or not. Because if you believe in a certain type of afterlife, it's going to perhaps direct your actions in a certain way. And if you believe in a different type of afterlife, it's going to direct your actions in a different way. For instance, if you believe, let's say, in eternal reincarnation, if you think that you're simply going to be reincarnated into another entity, depending on which type of reincarnation you believe in, the entity might be, depending on your actions, better or worse, because your actions were good, so deserving of basically a promotion, being in a higher life form or having an easier life or the opposite, or other types, there's different schools for the idea of the reincarnation, but this goes on ad infinitum, forever. You're not going to live the same way as someone who believes that you are only here with one chance, with one life, and then whatever happens afterwards for eternity is going to be based on this one chance that you had in this world. And inshallah, one day we can get into more details if you're interested about the idea of the reincarnation and why or why it doesn't work and how it can direct your life in a completely different way. Generally speaking, yes, you may still have the ideas of trying to do good, to be better, so that that cycle works better. But it's still a completely different type of worldview than someone who believes that you live in this world once, and then based on this, you're going to live for eternity into happiness, unhappiness, and so on and so forth. So this is all about the establishing very clearly the importance of the topic, the relevance of the topic, that this is not just a theoretical topic. It changes the way we live, okay? So that's the first point. The second point we said is, perhaps it looks like we're just opening a bracket to discuss another topic, but this is actually a topic that we need for every part of the big discussion on the afterlife. And this is a topic of the, of the soul of the existence and the nature of the soul. So instead of researching the different aspects of the soul as we go along in the big topic of the afterlife, we thought it might be better just to take out the topic of the soul, discuss it you know, to the extent we can in this introductory uh, discussion that we have. So what's the nature of the soul? What does it mean when we say soul? What are we referring to? What's our relationship when I say I, me, What's my relationship to this soul? What's a relationship body-soul? How does that work? So what do we mean by soul? Does it actually exist or not? Why do we say, why do some people say it exists? Why do some people say it doesn't exist? So we looked at what it means and the nature and the relationship. We looked at a few, let's call them rational arguments for the soul. We added to those some scriptural arguments for the existence of the soul from the Holy Quran. And then... With that in mind, we thought it might be relevant to spend a little bit of time also trying to see the alternative is what? If you say that there is no soul, that you are not anything more than this physical body that you have, what does that mean? Where does that leave us? And so basically you're left with a materialist worldview 
And so we went through, we made claims initially. We said those who adopt a materialist worldview are going to be also stuck with rejecting free will. They are going to be stuck with not really having meaning behind any action. They are going to be rejecting the idea even of consciousness and awareness. And we said these are very big claims. And so in order to really establish that, we said let's go through some of their books, some of their works, some of their quotes to make sure we really take their words. We're not putting words into their mouths. And we want to see what they're saying. Are they actually saying that awareness, self-consciousness is an illusion or not? And we saw that they do say that. They do say that the idea of your eye being you know, something immaterial does not make any sense. It is nothing more than just the biochemical reactions going on in your brain. And that most likely this is all your genes trying to play tricks on you to give you the impression that you're one unit, one identity. But in reality, you're just you know, the biochemical reactions in your brains as they react with the world. Action, reaction, action, reaction. And when there's no more power, so you're out of life, you expire and everything stops. So we went through the different quotes and, and uh, I think we clearly established what the materialist worldview amounts to when it comes to rejecting the idea of anything immaterial in us. So the idea of the soul and the mind and all of that. So we, afterwards, we came back to the topic of the afterlife. So now we said, let us now look at the big question, which is why do we need an afterlife? When we say there's an afterlife, something happens after we die, why? And so, as we said, one layer, one level is to say, this is not against reason. This is not against logic to say that there's an afterlife. We're going further than that. We're saying it's not only a possibility, which enough should be enough on its own to take it very seriously, given what's at stake, which is eternity. We're not saying that it's only a logical possibility. We're saying that it's a necessity, that there has to be an afterlife for any of this to make sense, for our existence to make sense, for the existence of this universe to make sense. There's a necessity for an afterlife. And we said we're going to start by exploring some rational arguments for this. And then we're going to go into the other type of arguments. So we began with the rational arguments. We began with the argument from divine wisdom. We said if we look, and there's different variants to this, but to simplify very quickly and, and uh, you know, and, and simply, we said that if you look at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's actions and God's actions, if you go back to what we said when we presented even the idea of God and the attributes that go with this God, for all of this to make sense, one of the attributes was that God has wisdom. Having wisdom means that when he acts, he acts with purpose. So we keep this in mind, and now we come to the human being we see what type of creature is the human being. Now we've established that there is a soul. This soul has a certain nature that makes us lean towards infinite desires. When we look at what's available to us in this world, 
we see that those desires could never be fully fulfilled because of the nature of this world. And so we said this on its own should start giving us an indication that this world cannot be all there is. Why? Because we go back to the first premise and we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has wisdom. In other words, when he acts, he acts with purpose. Would he put an infinite desire in you if he did not give you a possibility to fulfill that desire? And when we look at the nature of this world, we see that this is not allowed. Nothing in this world is of this nature, of this type that is pure and infinite, as we would, you know, have in a different type of world. And so this starts giving us a hint that that other world has to be very different from this one, so that those desires can be fulfilled fully. And then we could say, so the divine act is with purpose. He did put something in you that you can actually reach and fulfill fully. It's just not possible in this world. So if you reject the next world, then you're stuck with the idea that maybe this God is not very effective. He creates things for no reason. He puts desires in us that we can never fulfill. We gave an example of this. We said, for instance, human beings like to live forever. You have a desire to live eternally. And then you come to a human being in this world and you see that their life is very short, very limited. And that's it. So why is that desire there? And this is where you have to go back to the notion of what type of God is it? And the, these are actually examples that they use to show that this world is not effective, that there are things that don't work. Well, that's true. Those arguments become valid if you want to only look at this world. That's true. This is a world without wisdom, and this is a world without justice, and this is a world with, if you say this is the only world that exists. But if you add the afterlife to it and you say this forms one whole, they go together, then you say, no, no, this is a world that cannot be imagined with any more perfection than it has, given the purpose that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created it for, which always comes back to having freedom of will to go through the tests to earn the reward or the punishment that we deserve. Okay? So these were the big points that we've presented until now. So this is the idea or the argument that comes to us from if we go back to the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the attribute from divine wisdom. And also from there, we also said, keep in mind that we now have established that the next world needs to be a world different from this one. We're going to get to those details later, but we're establishing those premises, those points already. So if the world in which we live does not allow us to fully reach the potential that we have as human beings, then the next world by necessity has to be a world where that potential is entirely available. Okay? So that was the two big points that we've established until now. From this, we want to get into the new topic, which is the topic for today. This topic is proving the necessity of having an afterlife with the argument from divine justice. Once again, as we said, this is going to be a rational argument. 
So very possible to get into this type of discussion with anyone just based on reason. We're not using any verses from the Holy Quran, any narration, so on and so forth, based entirely on reason. Until now, what we've said, and this should be clear enough, we look at the dimension of the world inhabited by human beings. We look at human life throughout the generations, throughout history, throughout the millennia. Human beings live in a very different way, a lot of variety. You have those who do some good and some bad. You have those who do a lot of good and a little bit of bad. You have those who do a lot of bad, a little bit of good, everything in between. If you look at the type of world it is, the more you look at those who do good and those who do bad, the more something strikes you. This is something that we encounter and experience directly in our everyday life. And this is something that we see a lot more obviously when we study a little bit of human history. Because now you see the scale and you see the repercussions of certain actions and you see where one act multiplied or the extent to which it is done can have repercussions, how far this can go. The bottom line from all of this is the world, and everybody should know this, the world is not fair. It looks like there are too many cases where people who do good are not rewarded for the good they do. It just goes unrecognized. And we have the opposite. People who do bad, they're not punished for what they're doing. And they sometimes leave this world and everybody knows that they have done a lot of evil, a lot of bad, nothing happened to them. They were able to get away. And sometimes if you study enough history, you even find cases where people become oppressors and tyrants, and statues are erected in their names, and temples, and street names. And in fact, they were as much of a transgressor as you can be, as much of a tyrant and an oppressor, abusing of your power as you can be. And sometimes history may correct that, sometimes it doesn't. But at the end of the day, that person still left this world, and they enjoyed that type of reputation and that type of good name for themselves for the time they did. These are examples that I think any sane, objective human being would say this is a manner in which this world works. It's not a fair world. And this is something to keep in mind. We're not going to get into that topic now. But one more dimension to, to, this, to the discussion about having the ethical point of view when talking about materialism and atheism, okay? So keeping that in mind, let's park that for now. This is the general introduction. Human beings are free to act as they wish. They're being, they're given faculties. They have a certain power. They're put in different circumstances and they act and the actions are looked at by others, and we can say, this is good, this is bad. This is very good, this is very bad. And if you add the 
more theological dimension to this. You say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created all of this as a test. You're here to see how you're going to act. Are you going to act with good, with bad, a mix, somewhere in between, so on and so forth. How does this help us in establishing the afterlife? There's different ways to do this. So here we have five different arguments, all of them coming to us from the idea of divine justice. The first argument we presented was divine wisdom. Now we're going to prove the necessity of the afterlife from divine justice. The first argument. The first argument is that, keeping everything we said in mind, if you look at those who do good in this world and those who do bad in this world, it's not only that there are a lot of cases where someone does good and it goes unrecognized or someone does bad and it goes unpunished. In fact, sometimes it's the opposite. How many cases are there in history where there are people who do good and they are punished for the good that they do? They are tortured, they are persecuted, they have to sacrifice everything, sometimes even their lives for doing good. And on the other side, you have those who do bad and not only does it not go, not only does it not get punished, it goes unpunished, sometimes it's rewarded. They live extremely wealthy, happy, luxuriant, comfortable lives, and you add to that a good reputation, you add to that, it's as though the world is even rewarding their, you know, narcissistic, selfish, egotistical drives and traits, and it rewards the evil that they create and they put into the world. If you go back to the idea or to the notion that we presented when we said there is a God and one of his attributes is justice, then you solve this problem. You solve the problem of having evil in this world. But again, you only solve it if you look outside of this world. So if you look at the state of human action in the world, and you see the good and the bad that human beings conduct themselves in, they do, they put into the world, that if you limit yourself to only this life, to only this world, you're going to say that this is not a just world. This is not a fair world. And that's true. If you limit it to only this existence. When you combine it with the afterlife, then you see how justice is reestablished, how nothing goes unpunished or unrewarded. Okay? So that's the first version of the argument, first point of the argument. The second one. The second version of the argument says, when we look at the good and the bad that human beings perform, the good in itself needs to be linked to, needs to create, needs to, uh, you reap good. And bad, you reap bad. In this world, it doesn't happen. Okay? Why do we present it this way? Because there are people who have actually contested this issue. 
And they have said that there is no such thing as good. The good is only because God has said this is something you have to do. So it becomes good. But in itself, it's not good. Of course, we reject that as you know, most of humanity rejects that. Human beings recognize good when they see it. There are cases where good and bad become a little bit relative. That's true. But that's because there's something confusing that if it's removed or properly explained, then you can go back to being put, being able to put it back into perspective and say, this is good and this is bad. Normal cases, no matter which century you're born in, where you live in the world, whether you're in the rainforest in, in the Amazon or you're you know, living in a big city, there are cases where you see someone take something that does not belong to them from someone else. You're going to say, this is bad. This is evil. You're not allowed to do that. Right? There are very universal, well-understood criteria for what is good and what is bad. If you keep that in mind and you look at human behavior, you're going to see that there are acts that you can clearly say are good acts. And acts that you can clearly say are bad acts. Just on that premise... We say, therefore, there must be an afterlife where this is properly rewarded. Good for good and bad for bad. Okay? That's the second version of the argument. The third version of the argument. Sometimes they say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not need to do anything with good and bad. So another version to answer this is if we lived in a world where every single human being was acting in the same exact manner as everybody else. Then you could even make that claim. And even then it would be very problematic for all the other reasons. But at least you could make that claim. The problem is we live in a world where every human being is acting differently. In other words, this is an argument or this version of the argument is from distinction. People are not acting in the same way. Some people are displaying much more discipline, much more patience, much more sacrifice. So there's an inequality. You cannot just ignore all of them. If they all acted equal, then you can make the claim that there is no need, no, there is no need or reason for rewarding or punishing since they all did the same thing. There's no distinction. And even then, we said all the other arguments refute that because we're saying the act in itself, as we just said, is good or bad, regardless of what others have done. The act in itself is either good or bad. Okay? One more version of the argument. If you look at the types of good that are done, they're not all equal. Sometimes you, you walk in the street, you see someone who needs help, and you help them. A good act that you just performed. Anyone who would look, that, look at that would say, an act of charity, you help them out, that's good for you. You should be rewarded for that. And there are maybe ways of rewarding people for that. But what do you do with cases that are clearly beyond what anyone could ever do to reward or punish someone in this world? What do you do in a case, for instance, 
of someone who is going to go out of their way. Let's say someone who runs into a burning house and he saves the lives of five people. And in the process, he gets very injured. His skin might, I don't know, get damaged permanently for the rest of their lives. And he saved those five people. What's the reward for this person? Let's say there are people who had lost consciousness, passed out, couldn't breathe anymore. So everybody knows they're dying. So we're sure he actually saved their lives. What's the reward for this? What do you do? You give them a medal? You recognize them? What's the reward for this? What's the reward for someone who puts themselves in harm's way to the point where they sacrifice their life? So you give your life up completely. You are dead after this because you took a bullet for someone else, because you stepped into harm's way to save them. Let's say children. Let's say you know, we're in a situation where 10 or 50 or 200 people, their lives are saved because you decided that it was okay for you to sacrifice your life so that theirs are saved. And sometimes this may happen as an accident. You did it, and because you did it by accident, their lives are saved. But what if you're doing it willingly? You're choosing that at this moment, given these circumstances, I'm giving my life up to save these people. How do you reward this person? What is there in this world that you could use to reward someone like that? And especially since now they've left this world. And you can take the same types of examples on the other side. So what do you do to someone, let's say, who caused a major injury to another human being? They resulted in them, let's say, becoming paralyzed for life. Or someone who kills another human being. Maybe we could say we can take their life away. Okay, what if they killed 10 people? They have only one life. We can decide as a society, as a convention, that, okay, for every life, we're going to keep you in jail for 20 years or 50 years. And then at the end of that, in 80 years, if you're still alive, we're going to execute you. They have those laws in certain societies. But this is a matter of convention. I don't think any human being would look at that and say, this is fair, that you took out, you took out X number of human lives, and the end result of this was that you're going to be losing your one life. And that's fair. That's not fair. And if you take the extremes, extreme examples of these, where people are killing a million human beings, causing that type of terror and war, what do you do with that? How do you create a balanced world, a just world, if this is the type of good or bad that is being, that is happening. You take examples where you say, for instance, someone sacrificed their lives to guide humanity, as we have in the cases of prophets, as we have in you know, the story of Imam al-Hussein, for instance. What's the reward for that? How many generations, how many souls, how many people are saved, guided, live differently for every instant and every experience? that they have as they live, how do you reward that? And this is where you clearly establish that there's nothing you can do in this world 
to fully compensate the type of good that human beings are capable of and the type of bad that human beings are capable of. So you need another world where you can actually do that. If what we said is true, and we said it is true, we presented all the arguments for it, that there is such a thing as divine justice. The type of God that would have created this universe is a just God. But then you look at what's allowed the potential, the full potential for in this world, and you see that it's very limited. It's too limited for what we're noticing, what we observe, what we find in ourselves. How much good you can do can never be fully rewarded. And as we said, yeah, there are examples that you might think is a proper reward. Okay, let's take the more extreme ones and then suddenly you start realizing that there's nothing in this world that can fully compensate the type of reward you need for really quality good and really extreme evil, which human beings are very capable of and it happens all the time. So once again, you need another world where this is going to be possible. This is establishing the necessity of the afterlife. The last version of this argument, they say, just like we presented the idea of if you find things in the world, including in yourself, you need to wonder where they come from. Why have they been put in there, in you? in the case of things you find in yourself. And one of those things that some scholars have spent time on, and it's abstract and nuanced, but it's really worth looking at, is that every human being has been equipped with a mini afterlife in themselves. And it's happening all the time. Of course, if you're the type of human being who's going to practice using it, it becomes a lot, you become a lot more sensitive to it. It becomes a lot more powerful in you. And this is the idea of your conscience. Your conscience is like a mini tribunal constantly going on inside you. <laughs> Everything you do, you have this internal type of tribunal judge who's asking you, why did you do that? Was that the right thing to do? Do you have any regrets? Should you be disciplining yourself so this doesn't happen again? Maybe you did something good. You should feel proud that you did something good. You should, you should feel good about yourself. You have to find ways to do more of that. Why is that there inside of us? What is that hinting to? Once again, a lot of our thinkers and a lot of our philosophers and scholars have said this becomes the way in which you realize that there is another dimension to you that is waiting to, it's taking you in that direction. Just like we said when we look, for instance, at a need that is not fulfilled in this world, you see that in the next world. You find that, the way you fulfill that in the, is the next world. The same thing is can be said about this mini tribunal that is always going on. Just like that, this is going on internally within you. You should know that this is going to happen at a higher level and it's going to happen to you as an individual. And it could also happen, which takes a discussion at another level. It also happens at the level of 
communities and societies and humanity in general. Okay? With this, and I didn't want to spend too much time on, on the lecture part, we're trying to keep them shorter so that we have more time for the discussion. I think with this, we've presented the argument for the necessity of an afterlife, necessity of the afterlife based on divine justice. I think it's clear enough. That's why we presented different variants, different points to, to look at it from different ways. But I think it's clear enough. Um, and with this, we've kind of wrapped around the topic of the big arguments. There are maybe three or four other ones. There are minor arguments for like the big rational proofs for the afterlife. I think we can put them aside. If this topic is well understood and you know we don't have any issues, problems with it, so that we can move to the more scriptural arguments from this. And there's something that we need to keep in mind when we're going to come to the Quran that we can talk about now. The Quran presents two different versions of these proofs. And we're going to look at both. The first ones have to do with what we are referring to now as rational arguments. So sometimes you look at a verse from the Holy Quran and you see that, you know, it says, it presents a truth. It says something. I may use that because I'm a believer in the Quran, I may use that to say the reason why I do or the reason I accept what's in this verse is because the Quran says. The Holy Quran has said something. I'm a believer in the Holy Quran. I do it. End of story. That can be called a Quranic proof, a scriptural proof. And that's fine for someone who believes. But the Holy Quran does not always say you have to do because I said so, because of the Holy Quran. Sometimes the Holy Quran also presents its own logical proofs. It presents its own rational proofs. So you're not saying I do because the Quran said, so I do. It's even if I don't believe that the Holy Quran is a book of God, I still need to seriously consider the argument that the Quran is making. So it's not saying you do because this is a Quranic scripture from God, and therefore you must do. The Quran says, use your mind. Here's an argument. Does the argument sound logical and valid to you or not? So you accept or reject the argument on a rational foundation, on a logical foundation, not because it's a scripture. But inshallah, when we're going to go to the Holy Quran, we're going to see it uses both. And it uses even other examples that we haven't talked about in ways to present the idea that there is an afterlife, that it's not only logical, but that it's a necessity. And it presents the argument that we can call scriptural. And it also presents the argument that is entirely rational. Inshallah, we're going to come to that. So this is the topic. Inshallah, it's clear enough and we can put that aside. And please keep in mind the kind of the big questions that we had around this topic, which is the linkages that we wanted to make with regards to the idea that is there a meaning or not behind your actions, depending on whether you believe there is a afterlife or not. 
and the ability to create a ethical and moral system for yourself if you do not believe that anything happens after you die. And can that work at an individual level? And then the bigger question, the much tougher question is, can this work at a social level? With this, I think, inshallah, we've started also to touch on the important point of trying to understand what type of world the afterlife has to be. Obviously, there are things in this world that are preventing divine wisdom from being fully exposed, being fully manifested. There are things in this world that prevent divine justice from being fully applied. So this starts to give us an indication that the afterlife has to be a different kind of world than this one. So we're going to talk about that, inshallah. This is just where we're establishing the foundations for this. So that those problems that we're encountering in this world are not going to be encountered in that next world. Okay, so that's the topic. Please park any questions, concerns you have. The second mini topic for a couple of minutes that we can talk about is that these days happen to be the anniversary of the martyrdom of Imam al-Hassan al-Askari, the 11th of our months. And in the past, I think we've dedicated some lectures to the life of the Imam salam. I think I'll highlight two points from Imam al-Askari salam. And there's a lot to be talked about in the life of Imam al-Askari. The first one has to do with the type of life that he had to live. Imam al-Askari left this world at an age of about 29. And he became an imam around the age of 23. If you look at the circumstances surrounding his life, you see that he had difficulty from every angle. There was already a lot of scrutiny, a lot of difficulty that had been imposed on his father, Imam al-Hadi The situation got worse at the time of Imam al-Askari There is a reason that was clear and there was a reason that seems to be hidden. It's clear to us today. But to the majority of the people, this was not always clear at that time. The open reason is that this had continued from the time of the previous Imams at the time of the Abbasiyin. They just got worse and worse with every Imam because the Imams were seen as their direct competition for ruling. The Abbasin initially came into power with the idea that they were going to re-establish justice by taking the rule, by taking sovereignty, political power, and giving it back to its rightful people. And they allied with the sons of Imam al-Hassan and Imam al-Hussein at the beginning, and some of them worked with them because they all thought that the rule would go back to members of sons of Imam Ali salam. That's not what the Abbasids did. Right away, as soon as they took power, they started by getting rid of anyone who dared to be in a position where they might be considered a competitor. And anyways, we're not going to go through the 
the history of the Abbasids, that situation just kept getting worse and worse from one Imam to another, all the way to, by the time of the 10th Imam, Imam al-Hadi the situation was extremely difficult where the Imam was basically imprisoned in his own house. This continued with Imam al-Askari At that time, the Abbasid rule was actually, in a lot of cases, in a lot of points in their big kingdom, in decline. So they already had a lot of problems. And Imam al-Hassan al-Askari was seen as just one more of those problems. So they were ruthless with them. The Imam basically lived imprisoned in his house, and he was an Imam for six years, and he was living in a remote area, a little bit outside of where the majority of the people were living. You take that into consideration, and you would say it would be logical, it would make sense to say the Imam was basically taken out of the equation. He can't really have any effect on society. He can't really do anything that is of any good to the people living in his time and much less to the people who would come later. And yet you look at the life of Imam al-Hassan al-Askari and you see that he did not just continue the work of his forefathers, he was actually able to transform things in those societies and a lot of that had huge repercussions for what we have today. So in other words, the Imam was not only able to change the society he lived in, the Imam was able to change generations and centuries of people and societies that would come afterwards because of the work that he did during that. And there's a lot that can be mentioned here. One of the things that can really be highlighted is how he taught the Shia to work through a system of representatives. If the Imam is completely cut off from the rest of society, then how are people supposed to find the truth? How are, how are people supposed to go back to that person that is supposed to be the representative of religion? And so the Imam and previous Imams had put things in place. Since the time of Imam al-Baqir, Imam al-Sadiq, we started seeing representatives. Imam al-Kawam used them a lot during the time that he was imprisoned. And by the time Imam al-Askari was the Imam, he uses this system in a very sophisticated way, which today we would refer to as the Marja'iyah. This is your system where you have people who are appointed directly or indirectly by the Imam so that you can rely on a network that is secure, that brings you back to the truth and the message that Ahlul Bayt are carrying to the world. That's one example. And that could be a series of lectures just on that. The Imam السلام, despite the difficulties of his time, he ensured that one of the main ways to keep the message of Ahl al-Bayt alive is to teach Quran. And one of the tafasir that we have today is attributed to Imam al-Hassan al-Askari Two people went to visit the Imam. They came to him asking him to teach them. And they were able to make it to the Imam and the Imam started teaching them. Now there's a whole discussion today on whether the version that we have today is entirely authentic and the same one that the Imam taught. That's a technical discussion. But the fact that he taught people tafsir is established. 
And we are told that if you were to put the books, they would fill many camels of how much he taught, how much tafsir they wrote, filling books, filling the rolled up scriptures that they used to write on. So the imam established very clearly the manner in which you're supposed to get back to the foundations of your religion, and he gave a lot of importance to the Holy Quran. When the imam takes a verse of the Quran, and he explains it for not one or two or ten pages, let's say he explains it in, by today's standards in 50 pages, where he is explaining one verse, this is a call, this is an invitation to us to look into the Qur'an way past just a superficial reading of the words. The Imam is teaching us that there is a lot more going on in the verses in the Qur'an and it deserves to be studied and analyzed and pondered as the Qur'an keeps repeating, right? It pushes us and invites us and enjoins us. Right? All the time. The last point that I would mention about the life of Imam Hassan al-Askari is that he has a narration in which that deserves its own lecture or lectures. But he has a narration in which he instructs his Shia. He tells them, he gives them a little piece of advice that is two to three lines long. And in there, he says, if you want to be of our Shia, then the manner in which you do that is by bringing the good to us and pushing the bad away from us. In other words, if you hear something bad said about the Imam, know that that's not about the Imam. The Imam knows that there are a lot of sayings against the Imam. So know that this is not about the Imam. The Imam would never do that. Otherwise, he would not be an Imam. And if you hear something good attributed to us, then know that it is from us. That is true. Accept it. Then he goes further. And he says, be to us something that is good, that brings us good. And do not be to us of those who bring us bad, bring us anything evil, a bad reputation, something that ends up negatively harming the imams. That alone can be an entire program and a lifestyle for us. If you apply this to everything that you do in your life, everything that you do is going back to the imam. Everything that you do is going to be attributed to your imam. And people are going to say, this is the Shia of the imam. So how are you conducting yourself? Are you conducting yourself in a way where the imam would say, yeah, these are my Shia, and they're proud of your conduct? Or are you doing things that would make the imam ashamed that these are his followers? And this applies to yourself when you're all alone, as it applies to you when you are with people, whether they are Muslims or not. This becomes your daily and practical way of living. This is going to go a very far way in for yourself, establishing to yourself, how are you supposed to live? Where are you supposed to, we've talked about this a lot, are you supposed to know what you're supposed to be doing in different circumstances? Well, this could be a criteria. Sometimes you don't know 100% the truth, the right way that you're supposed to behave. Use that as a criteria. If you did this, 
and this were to be attributed to the imam, if you did that and it were to be attributed to the imam, which one is the right one? Which one makes the imam proud and which one makes the imam ashamed? We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to keep us of those who can stay on the footsteps of the teachings of Ahlul Bayt salam. And for the discussion part, we can start now. For the lecture part, we're done. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين Questions, concerns, comments? So this argument relied on divine justice. Yeah. Did we get that from divine knowledge and divine power? Did we get what? How did we get to divine justice like before? Was that from divine power and divine knowledge? Or was it another way? After divine power and divine uh, knowledge. So you can establish this argument directly in itself, which is a right way to do it, or you can do it indirectly. You can either say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is adil, end of story, which we did. Or you can say, which we also did. Or you can say by negative. Why would you not be just? What are the reasons that would make you not just. There's four of them. The reasons why someone would not be just, God or us. First, someone might say, you don't have the power. You want to do the right thing, but you can't. Okay, that's one. Two, you don't have the knowledge. You have the power, but you don't have the knowledge. And in the case of God, he does. So it doesn't work. Three, you don't have the wisdom. You have the power and you have the knowledge, you don't have the wisdom. Okay, and the fourth one is you want to be evil. You want to do it just because you want to do it. And the reason I add that is Descartes, in his philosophy, he talked about an evil God. Okay, so what if we had a, an evil God? So, in short, when we look at the positive attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which are very clearly established if those attributes are accepted then you are stuck with accepting the conclusion which is therefore he must be a just God the reason why we do it this way is because this notion of the justice of God became a lot more problematic later it's a lot more problematic today in previous times that was not this much, that much the issue right? still when you look at it directly, it is also a, a, an attribute in itself. Like it is presented directly, for instance, in the Holy Quran as an attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly. But that said, the way we presented the attributes, we said that's the, if you want to build it like an arithmetic system, a very meticulous system, then you derive the attributes one from the other, right? And so when you come to divine justice, yeah, you can establish divine justice by the negative. So, why would you not be just? If you have all the perfection, you are the absolute entity that we talked about, then are you just or not? What would make you be unjust? Lack of power, or lack of knowledge, or lack of wisdom, or not wanting to. So, that's the, the four reasons that we said that they don't apply. None of them apply to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Excellent question. But you're forcing me to refresh to, yeah. Any other questions, concerns? For good? So inshallah, next lecture, 
we start looking at a different set of arguments to establish the necessity of the afterlife, and we're going to get into the Holy Quran. And you'll see that the manner in which the Holy Quran presents these, it's a lot stronger. The verses of the Quran are a lot more eloquent in presenting the argument than how we present them philosophically. It always goes a step further. But in any case, we're going to go quickly through the rational arguments in the Holy Quran, and then we're going to add more from the Holy Quran. And with that, we will have clearly finished one more topic, which is establishing the necessity of the afterlife. And then we're going to start looking at what does the Holy Quran actually say about the afterlife? What is it? What does it look like? And what happens? And what are its laws and principles? How are they different from the ones we have in this world? Okay? Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa ta'ala. Allah.